following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So when I was a kid, at my school, we used to get this kid's newspaper there called the Weekly Reader. Anybody else ever ever read the Weekly Reader, right? If you haven't seen it, I have some pictures of them here I can show you. Um, From various uh, parts of American history, um, after a while, like Scholastic bought it and made it all glossy and horrible, uh, and then they canceled it which was a metaphor for the newspaper industry, I think, but I don't know. Um, but you, in the, if you don't know, in the Weekly Reader, you would have basically the same big top news stories as you might find in the New York Times or um, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle or whatever, um, but written to an elementary grade school reading level. And uh, for me, very poignantly on the right there is the is one from the early 80s that's... that's talking about the, the Space Shuttle Challenger, um, which met its end while I was at recess in third grade. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, so you'd have these news stories, though, um, whatever was going on in the world. And then occasionally, at certain times of year, you would also have um, uh, articles about national holidays and that sort of thing. And... I'm pretty sure that it was in the Weekly Reader, the time of a national holiday, that I first encountered the story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, There was an article in there about Dr. King, and of course it had all the things that you might expect about segregation and um, the busing and Rosa Parks and the march and the I Have a Dream speech and, of course, the assassination. And I learned about racism mostly from that kind of uh, educational experience. So I knew from a very young age, and I don't recall what year it was that, that I first saw this article. I do remember seeing this, this article and being very um, taken aback. Um, but I learned from a very young age that racism is wrong, that segregation was profoundly harmful. That the color of a person's skin doesn't have any bearing on the quality of their character, much less on their intrinsic value as a human being. And yet, in my small town in southern Maine, there was not a single African-American child in my classroom And when I got a little bit older and transitioned into the junior high and high school system where four little small towns in Maine came together to form the largest high school in the state with about 1,500 students, there still were only maybe four or five African-American students in in my school. There were actually more... uh, Native American students than African American students in my high school growing up. And I think that that lack of relationship with people of color is why I ended up harboring what I must now confess was a a 
passive and probably mild, but still harmful form of racism. That was present in my life and, uh, if I'm being honest, probably still is there on some levels. And I think that the same might be true for many of you, even though most of you here at Artisan are um, progressive, forward-thinking, educated people who we all know are not remotely prejudiced in any way. Let me ask you to imagine a scenario with me. This is something I could imagine happening for myself and the responses that I might have to it. And I'm going to try to be as honest and forthcoming about it as I can. And I would like you to try to be honest and forthcoming in your own heart about what you might do in this same situation. I want you to imagine yourself stopped at that heinous red light at Goodman and and Clinton down there. (laughs) My house is that way, and the church is obviously here. I have to go through that accursed intersection so many times. It's very, very bad. So I want you to imagine coming down and and being stopped in the, uh, uh, the left lane at a red light, getting ready to turn left. And the red light is going on and on and on. And suddenly you hear that and feel that of the hoopty that's coming up in the right lane. The windows are tinted, but the base is not. (laughs) And the bumper's hanging off, but the rims are correct. The car comes up pauses for two seconds and then blows right through the red light. Who do you think is driving that car? And then just as the light is getting ready to change and you know because you watched the other one and it goes yellow and you're like, finally, and it goes red and you're like, here it comes and it goes green and a large, dark-skinned man in a hoodie steps into the crosswalk in front of your car and walks at this pace. While the light is green. It's green! (laughs) What are your assumptions about why he is inconsiderate and unaware or doesn't care that you have a place to be? And finally, he clears his little hoodie out of the way. You enter the intersection to turn left, and just as you do, oncoming car doesn't realize that there's a green arrow and hits you. And now you have to pull over to the side of the road and exchange licenses and call your insurance company. And you call the insurance company, and the woman on the other line picks up and says, Good morning, Geico. This is Shonda. How can I help you today? What are your assumptions about how accurately and efficiently this problem is going to be taken care of over the phone? So I've just given you a scenario that takes about five minutes. It involves three people at one intersection of the city. But I wonder if it didn't reveal to you 
as it reveals to me when I think about situations like that or when I find myself in them, that maybe you also still harbor a little bit of passive, mild racism. Passive, mild kind um, is worth distinguishing from the active, hard-edged, hateful kind. But it is still very harmful and it's still very problematic. So I want you to take that situation into your heart for a minute. Confess what you need to confess. And then I want to show you a brief video. Some of you have seen this video. It was on Upworthy a little while ago. I don't know about you, but when I see a video on Upworthy I, and I'm interested in it, I click the link and then I click directly to YouTube because I, don't, I, just, I resent that at 15 seconds in, she dropped a bomb. And at 45 seconds, she blew my mind. And then a minute and a half, she changed my whole world around. Have you seen those, those stupid little things? Um, so some of you have seen this video, but I, I want you to see it again. And if you haven't seen it, I want you to see it for the first time. Um, so we're going to get that up on the screen. It might take a minute because we have to cross over from our presentation software into the browser. And, um, so here goes. Uh, who's half black, half white, but looks white. Blue eyes, whiter than most white folks, very white. Uh, she and I, you know, we kind of grew up together. We raised our children together. Uh, so they're first cousins, and we, you know, it's a wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in a safe way for one day. And uh, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is in front of me. And she's, uh, you know, writing a check for her groceries. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me, and I was directly behind her, you know, getting ready to get my groceries. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who is a strawberry blonde, um, freckled, very delightful, warm, um, you know, the checker, this young woman, is talking to Kathleen. Hey, how you doing? This is a nice day today. They're just chatting up. And she says, yeah, so Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with her groceries because she's waiting for me. Of course, again, Kathleen looks white, right? So I come up. No conversation. She looks up at me. Absolutely no, just little chatter. And uh, I write my check. My daughter, however, is 10, notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check, and she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ID. At which point, my daughter looks at me, and she gets very, very embarrassed, and tears are kind of coming up in her eye like, Mommy, you're not going to... You're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I should do because behind me are two elderly white women, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so then I become the angry black woman, right? And they're going to be, and I just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I said, you know, some things you've got to choose your battles, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book right so the this is the book that shows the people who've written bad checks so she starts searching for my license in the bad checks at which point it's just out of control now just as i'm standing there um trying to decide what to do and it's really deeply humiliating now my my daughter is in full-blown emotionally upset who's 10 my sister-in-law walks back over <laughs> 
And she steps in and she says, excuse me, why are you doing this? And the checker goes, well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? She goes, why are you taking her through all of these changes? Why are you doing that? She goes, well, um, this is our policy. She goes, no, it's not your policy because you didn't do that with me. Oh, well, I know you, you've been. She goes, no, no, she's been here for years. I've only lived here for three months. And so at this point, the two white elderly ladies go, oh, I can't believe what this checker has done with this woman. It is totally unacceptable. At which point, the manager walks over. So the manager walks over and says, is there a problem here? And then my sister-in-law again responds. She goes, yes, there is a problem here. Here is what happened. So you see, she used her white privilege. And even though Kathleen is half black and half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement. She pointed out the injustice. And she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened? I can't know for certain had the black woman said, this is unfair. Why are you doing this to me? Would it have had the same impact? But Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That's what you can do every single day. That's pretty poignant, isn't it? That phrase that came up at the end, white privilege, I want to stop and pause for just a minute with that because... um, that, that phrase might, if you, if, might be a little bit incendiary. You might hear that phrase and think, oh, come on, not that liberal hooey, right? Um, is that even a real thing? Well, that kind of story, I think, offers evidence that it is a real thing. Um, and again, I, I didn't have very many relationships uh, that would have helped me understand this growing up. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've uh, been able to form some of those relationships. I'm so grateful for that. Especially with some of my colleagues, ministers in our denomination, which I am really impressed with, by the way, the, the Covenant Church's um, intentionality about this question and their dedication uh, to um, affirming and empowering um, ministers who are not white and not male. Um, they've done a great job with that. But I've, I've been able to form some relationships with, with people and, and they've looked me in the eye and said, no, this is a real thing. White privilege is a real thing. I, I don't have the time probably to go way down this road with you, um, but I, I've read some really insightful articles about this exact question. Um, this exact subtopic, if you will, and I'd be happy to share them with you um, if you're more interested in that. Um, but I want to I think about how that idea affects our culture at large. See, we all have this kind of individual reality for ourselves, right? W- what would you have done at the intersection at Goodman and Clinton? if those things had happened to you. That's how one person responds. And whatever um, assumptions and prejudices you may have present in your life will affect you there. But when you multiply um, that kind of prejudice and 
and apply it to the culture at large, it begins to become very, very damaging. Even that sort of mild, subtle stuff, right? And if you take this story of the grocery store, which, I mean, it was Safeway. We know that would never happen at Wegmans. Um, <laughs> Safeway is like one of those southern grocery stores, right? Um, <clears throat> but if you take that experience, that kind of discrimination, out of the grocery store and you put it into the bank or into the car dealership or into the mortgage lender's office or into any number of other places, the workplace, creates a, cultural, a culture of inequality that, that is so damaging to such a significant part of the population of our country. And I'm sorry to say that the problem is particularly bad in our city. I want to give you some facts and figures, and I'm sorry, visual learners, I did not create graphs and charts for this. So you're going to have to listen very carefully, especially if you're a visual learner, because I don't want you to miss just a little tiny picture of what this looks like in Rochester. Let me tell you about education. For the 2009-2010 cohort of the Rochester City School District, 9% of black males graduated in four years. 10% of Latino males graduated in four years. And, and in a record-breaking, scintillatingly awesome feat of educational prowess, 31% of, of white males graduated in four years. 31% sucks, by the way. Um, but it's three times more <clears throat> than students of color. The black population in Rochester is about 42%. The percentage of arrests of black people in Rochester is 66%. I'll say that again. Yes. The African American population of Rochester is about 42% of our population. If you look at the percentage of African Americans who make up, uh, who are arrested in Rochester, they make up 66% of the arrests that take place in our city. That's 50% more, if I'm doing math right. <laughs> There's a fairly good chance I'm not, but that's, I think I'm right about that one. The white population makes up 44% of the population, but only 33% of the arrests, by contrast. Income disparity, the Rochester annual median income for white households is 36,706. African American households, median income in Rochester is 24,417. From 36,700 to 24,400. If you expand the, the, the radius to include all of Monroe County, so not just the city of Rochester, but the, the suburbs of Monroe County, the median income for whites goes way up to 56000 so up by $20,000, whereas the median income of African Americans only goes up to 28239 I'm sorry to spit so many numbers at you, but are you, are you able to visualize this in your head just a little bit? In Rochester, 33% of white children live in poverty. 48% of black children live in poverty in Rochester. If you expand that to go to Monroe County, it's great news for white children because only 10% live in poverty, but 43% of black children still live in poverty countywide. 
And by the way, African-American infant mortality in Monroe County is more than four times higher than it is for white children. For Latinos, the rate is nearly five times that of white infant mortality. There is so much more I could say, so many more statistics I could give you, so much of Rochester's history that I could try to analyze that got us to this place. There are, of course, many factors that contribute to this. Not all of them are the result of racism, but some of them are. And it's the sucker's game to say that, well, that's not all about racism, so we don't have to worry about racism. That is the lie that people will try to sell you. That everything has to be, uh, the expression that I should probably not use is black and white, but, but you see what I'm saying? That it's, it's binary, nerds, right? It's either one or the other. It's either all racism or not any racism. So, so yes, I agree with those of you who are in your head saying that's not all because of racism. Part of it is, and that's what we're talking about today, so I'm not really interested in hearing about the other part at the moment, if you don't mind. Suffice it to say, there's something really wrong here in our city. And here's the thing. Here's why I spent all this time getting us to this point. This situation, this inequality, is contrary to God's design for humanity. It is evidence not of God's design, but of a sinful, broken, fallen world. It has always been in God's plan for people of all cultures and ethnicities to be together and live together in harmony, to worship together ultimately in harmony. It has always been in God's plan for people of all cultures and ethnicities to live in harmony. The whole story of Scripture attests to this. I don't have time to read you every passage I'm about to refer to, But if you have a pen and would like to write them down, you can do a Bible study on this during the week. The story of creation, Genesis 1.27. God made all people, men and women, in his image. This is where the whole thing begins theologically. I've talked about this before, right? Have you heard me quote Genesis 1.27 once or twice? Usually it's talking about men and women, both of whom were created in God's image. But all people bear the image of God. That is the great creation leveler, right? By the way, sometimes I, the, the, the whole like creation science argument makes me so crazy because it, it takes the focus off important theological statements like the one in Genesis 127 and puts it on this ridiculous, nonsensical, unimportant question. Anyway, that, that. I'm going to get fired up about other things. I shouldn't get fired up about that. The call of Abraham, the start of there being a people of God, specially chosen. But why was he called? What did God promise him again and again and again? Genesis 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 22. What did God say? I will make you the father of a great nation. Yay, lucky me. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Over and over again, it's reiterated that this special, holy, 
people, set apart for God. It's not just for their own benefit. It's not so that they can put the feather in their cap and turn up their noses. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's so that they can bless all other people. Well, that was a perfect picture. Once you get into the real, like, the real historical stuff with all the Mosaic laws, those are pretty, like, pretty hateful things. All that Gentiles are unclean stuff, right? Well, some of those Mosaic laws include very strict regulations about how the Israelites should welcome strangers and aliens in their midst. I don't mean like Ridley Scott aliens, I hope you understand. (laughs) Not like aliens, but like (laughs) immigrants. (laughs) Leviticus 19, Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 10, and lots of other places talk about this. How the people are required to be welcoming and embrace the alien in their midst. I'm going to skip over a whole lot of scripture and return to that passage in Revelation that I read as our call to worship when 40% of you were here. (laughs) Yes, more statistics, sorry. I could give you a bar graph, but I didn't have time. John's vision of the remade heaven and earth, of what worship will look like at the end of everything. When people are worshiping God and Jesus the Lamb. I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That phrase is repeated throughout Revelation. The picture of heaven and the worship therein is a picture of people from everywhere. And you have to imagine they look very different from each other and sound and talk very differently from each other. All worshiping God in one voice. That is what the future will be like. And what do we talk about? About God's future reality? The kingdom of heaven? We stand, where do we stand in this story? (laughs) In the middle, don't we? We stand in the middle of this story. That future reality is not here yet. Have I I done the already not yet thing recently? (laughs) The great work of Christ has already been done. The most important moment of history has already happened. But the result of that is not yet here. Part of our job is we stand in the middle between creation and redemption is to try to pull that future into our present, to try to pull that kingdom of God as it is in heaven onto earth. It has always been God's plan for people of all cultures and ethnicities to be together in harmony and that is the end of the story. We stand in the middle. Let me read you one text and it's a text from the middle. It's from the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. And I, I'm such a good pastor, I didn't even bring a Bible with me. Um, could I borrow one of these red Bibles, please? Thank you. You look like you even opened it to the page for me. That's awesome. 
page 940 if you're using these red Bibles. And uh, as always, I'll say if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these home with you. Um, but I encourage you to bring your own if you do have one, because it's always nice to, to see the Word in the, in the way that you will see it when you use it throughout the week. All right. I shouldn't have said 16. Why shouldn't I have said 16? There's a therefore there. <laughs> what is the therefore therefore? Let's read 15. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we no longer know him in that way. So what Paul is saying is that what we thought about Jesus turned out to be like less than was true. We regarded him from this human way and what we know about Jesus after the resurrection is that he is God. And the, the so what of that for Paul right here is we no longer regard anyone from a human point of view. We now have a Christ lens through which we see every person around us or we ought to. Verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. I think sometimes we hear the verse quoted... Um, Forgive as you've been forgiven, right? That's a sort of a paraphrase, but you know that, that statement from Scripture? It extends beyond forgiveness to this act of reconciliation. And notice the, the uh, where my grammar nerd's at, the subject and the object of this reconciliation. This is a very important theological point. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. We don't reconcile God to us. God reconciles us to himself. That has to apply to the ministry of reconciliation among humans. In other words, it's, you have to be the subject of the sentence. <laughs> you have to be the reconciler. Reconciling those others to yourself. And here it is. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is so much here. So much here. I love the image of being an ambassador. What's an ambassador? It's a person who goes into a foreign place on behalf of his or her native place. We have been reconciled to God. God has reconciled us to himself, brought us together in peace. It is now our job to be ambassadors of that same reconciliation in whatever world we live in, to bring that 
to those around us. That's what this series is about. It's about returning us to that call to be ambassadors of reconciliation as regards faith, race, and our city. So here is my humble suggestion for us this month in three parts. Somewhere there's a, like a preaching professor going, finally, he did a three points. <laughs> listen. Part one is listen. Part two is learn. Part three, after we've listened and learned, is act. And the seminary professor's like, oh, he should have come up with an L for that last one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're going to listen for the next month. We're going to listen to Scripture. But we are also going to listen to our non-white brothers and sisters. I am not going to preach again until the last Sunday of this series. Um, The topic of which, by the way, is what have we learned? (laughs) I don't know what it's going to contain just yet because we haven't learned it yet. (laughs) Next week we will have a a panel discussion um, with... Uh, some people in Rochester and possibly even from other cities. I'm, I'm unfortunately still working out some of these details, but I promise it will be great, even if we have just the one person who has committed from Rochester so far, um, who work toward this kind of reconciliation. Um, and we're going to hear from them. And we're going to listen to them. We're not going to do the, oh, but, 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 wait, that's not, but, no, we're just going to listen. We're going to learn. We're going to learn from Scripture. What is our calling as Christians? It's part of what I was just talking about. We're going to learn from our non-white brothers and sisters. What are our blind spots? Where are the ways that we fail? What do we do that helps? What do we do that hurts? What do we do that is so ineffective that it's pointless and we should stop? And then after we've listened and learned a thing or two, we're going to talk about some action that we might be able to take. And again, that's a blank slate right now. I don't know what that's going to look like exactly. I'm excited to learn. And I think our mindset needs to change a little bit first. So I want to ask you to join me in opening your heart to the Spirit of God. Because I think God may need to break our hearts a little bit before, before it's time for us to, to start getting our hands dirty with this work. And by the way, I am not under any idealistic uh, notion that that we're going to figure this out in four weeks and then everything's going to be great. I do not think that the first thing we try is going to be a home run. But I do think that we need to be committed to this work. We need to be committed to, to continuing to try, continuing to listen, continuing to learn. It's all part of living our faith beyond our walls. That's what we're talking about all year long. So I want to close today with a responsive prayer for reconciliation. I will read the the 
regular text, and I'd like to have you read the bold text, and I think the last one has one that we'll say together, okay? Let's pray. Across the barriers that divide race from race, across the barriers that divide rich from poor, across the barriers that divide people of different cultures, Across the barriers that divide Christians. Across the barriers that divide men and women, young and old. Confront us, O Christ, with the hidden prejudices and fears that deny and betray our prayers. Teach us to grow in unity with all God's children. Amen. May it be so. Um, Our response to the Word of God and the the movement of the Spirit is to come to the table of the Lord Jesus. Um, I talk about this so many different ways, um, but one one of my favorite things to think about is how this is a great unifying sacrament. You come to the same table, receive the same bread and the same wine as your brothers and sisters in the room here, some of whom are very different from you, some of whom have very different views from yours. You can argue about those at the pub. <laughs> you love each other at the table. And, and, and while we take this, this sacrament together in our mostly white congregation, We join with other congregations that may be mostly black. We join with other congregations that may be Latino and Asian. We join with all Christians from every tribe and culture and nation in receiving this holy sacrament instituted by Jesus on the night that he, he was betrayed. So when you come to the table... Tear off a piece of the bread and remember Christ's body, broken for you and you and you and for them. Dip it in the the wine or the juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and your family. Remember Jesus' blood, which was shed for you and you and you and for all of them. And remember that in receiving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, there is no longer us and them. It's just us. That's the ideal. That's the future. That's where we're going. And that's where we're going to try to pull into our present together. If you're visiting with us today, uh, I want you to know that our table is open to all Christians. You don't have to be a member of our church or our denomination. Um, If you're visiting with us and you're not a person of faith in Christ, um, this is probably something that you should not do unless you're deciding to make a faith commitment right now that that, um, some very sacramental people might get up in arms if you did this before you got baptized, but I'm not going to be too picky about that. Uh, I would like to say that this is a table of grace and uh, the Lord extends it to you if you're making a first-time commitment of faith, uh, if that happens to be true for you. But if you're not a person of faith and you're here to observe and uh, participate in other areas, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. Feel free to sit and think and meditate or pray. Nobody will look at you funny if you don't take communion with us today. Um, You should do what's appropriate for you and and where you are in your your own kind of faith uh, journey, if you'll pardon the the word that's sometimes overused. 
So our table is open now. Let's continue to worship God in so many different ways. Our prayer team, um, I think, will be here today. Um, If you'd like personal prayer, you can receive that while we're uh, singing our last couple of songs. Uh, Respond as the Spirit leads. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.